2: Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. I'm Yaz Rana and later on the show we'll be hearing from the great Sir Isaac Vivian Alexander Richards. But first up to discuss T20Is, selection philosophy, air pollution and much more. I'm thrilled to be joined by regular guest, Crickviz analyst Ben Jones. Hello Ben, how are you? I'm very
1: well
3: yes. thanks for having me back.
2: Fantastic. And for the first time a Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast newbie, the commentator and presenter Michael McCann. Welcome Michael, what was your moment of the week?
3: My moment of the week was the Nasser Hussain Parkinson speech. I just thought it was lovely. I I think everyone who's seen it knows what I mean. If you haven't, go and watch it. Presents him his cap. Talks about the journey. It was it was really poignant. It was really mm-hmm. lovely. And the way he referenced the throwdowns and the people that have got him there as well. You know, I just thought it was it was perfect. Really, mm-hmm. what a way to get your cap.
2: Absolutely. Um, so at the time of recording, we're three games into that T20i series between England and New Zealand. New Zealand are 2-1 up after England won the first game in the series. James Vince was a half century in that game. Uh, Chris Jordan took 3 for 23 and hit a rapid 36 in a narrow England defeat in the second game at Wellington. And finally England collapsed in some style in the most recent fixture at Nelson, falling from 139 for 2 in the 15th over to 166 for 7 at the end of the inning. So lose that by 14 runs. Ben, two questions. We've had five England debutants: Pat Brown, Matt and Saqib Mahmood, Lewis Gregory, and Tom Banton. Actually, six if you include Sam Curran, who has somehow never played a T20I before. First, who's impressed you the most? And number two, who do you think is most likely to go on the plane to Australia for the World Cup next year? God, it's hard, isn't it? Um, I
1: think part of it—it's a bit—it's a bit difficult to assess these guys so early because of, we're we're judging them on their first ever step up. But I think we we've all we've all kind of put our cards on the table ahead of the series and said, we're all most excited about Tom Banton, probably. And because, you know, he's an exciting, he's eight foot tall. He smashes it to every part of the ground. He's kind of terrified anyone who's come to Taunton in the last year or so. And he's, he's, he looked, he looked good, but you know, not all that. Parkinson looked skillful and everything that we've seen in the blast, maybe a little bit slow, but, like, that's something that he's going to develop as he works with maybe slightly slightly higher profile coaches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think that's kind of the pattern we've seen across all the debutants, including Sam Curran, to be honest, as a, a you know, as a young bowler. Because, you know, he's obviously played a lot of international cricket, but he's not played a lot of whiteboard cricket. Mm. Um, it's been that sense of these guys have come in, they've shown what we thought they'd do. No one's gone massively over the top and done incredibly well and got a ton and no one's taken eight for. We've all kind of done what we expected. Pat Brown's bowled tidily had a couple of bad spells where you think, oh, is he quite up to it? But we all know that he definitely is. That's why he's there. And I think it it, it kind of comes back to that thing of when you're judging players on a fairly small sample size, which T20 naturally lends itself to because the games are so short, it's really difficult to come to conclusions, which is why the next few games are probably just as important as the first three because we need to, I don't know, almost stick with the same team, give them more of a chance to express their skills and then kind of assess things there rather than
3: trying to jump to anything now and get the bandwagon rolling.
2: Mm. Michael, what, what, what about you? Who's, who's impressed you the most in the series? Um,
3: I'm going to sidestep that question and actually go off the back of what Ben said about the bandwagon in that I think that there is a danger that the media can sort of lead a charge on a player based on, I'm going to say limited information, but what I more mean is kind of referencing what you said about keeping the team the same. I mean, you're already dealing with a very small sample size in terms of someone like Banton, who, is, who has come and shone in a, in a very short s- space of time. And now you're dealing with an even smaller sample size than that in terms of their international exposure. So I think it's more about actually giving us time and a better opportunity to judge all of them. Parkinson is the one that I see, I, I can envisage him and Rashid. And also you've got the 2021 world cup in india so again that kind of lends itself quite nicely to i can imagine you having parkinson and Rashid and potentially mohan ali um, and maybe depending on the pitch you could even go four spinners there's this very old school traditional thing of like we need to have more seam bowlers than spinners and it's good to see that that's starting to be eroded away by t20 the change can't come quickly enough you know it goes back to this old school thing from here at the oval where you'd be like well we'd have our championship team we'd have four seamers and we'll have a spinner. And now, I think you're increasingly seeing T20 attacks becoming more free and free split, or even a three spinners, two seamers with one as a part timer type of thing. And having Parkinson in, England, in the England T20 team is a good reflection of that change. The best thing
1: about Parkinson going forward, as well for for him from his perspective, is that the replacement level of his skill in in English cricket is a lot worse. Yeah. Because if you're Pat Brown, you've got to overcome Chris Jordan, who's been a good death bowler for quite a few years you've got tom curran who's a good death bowler and has played in leagues around the world and pat brown's kind of starting out on that journey you've you see, got people like tamar mills well exactly We're not, we, you've got a lot of people who are very talented ahead of him you've with tom banton it's a sim, it's a similar story to pat brown you've got loads of top order talent um with parkinson it is basically if he can nail this series he's going to partner partner Rashid in the squad and potentially the team, along with Moeen Ali, you'd expect. So I think we, we've got to kind of be careful that we don't leap into being like, oh, Parkinson's definitely done really, really well because we kind of need him to, because there's no one else at the moment.
2: Look at, looking at kind of uh, where England have strength in numbers, uh, I agree with all that, but one spot where England don't potentially know what to do with is is the finisher role. Who bats Who bats five, six, seven in that T20 side? You'd imagine Moeen will probably end up batting seven like he did in the ODI stuff?
1: I, I would be surprised if he batted that low. I think, he'll, I think he'll bat up. Because I think in T20, I mean, A, he's a better T20 player than he is an ODI player. Um, and because he has the very specific skill set of absolutely smashing spin. It's something like, I think only Cameron Akmal hits, f- hits it harder and hits it faster um, against spin in the last few years. And I think England need someone to come in when they're three down and they're getting a bit stodgy. Mm. Like some of the Australian pitches will be a bit stodgy next mm. year. They're not all going to be absolute roads. Mm. Um, I, I genuinely don't know who will bat. Uh, seven. I think I think by the looks of things they want it to be Lewis Gregory but I don't I mean obviously he's start he's starting out we don't know whether he's going to be up to mm. it. He could be amazing and he could really he could solve it. I think basically it's there for anyone who wants it because mm. there aren't many elite English finishers at, around at all.
3: But see I think this is part of the problem. So many of these players are batting three or four for their counties. You look at someone like Sam Curran and he'll bat three for Surrey. Mm. And that's great and he batted he had a very decent blast with the bat last summer but all these players are batting three or four for their counties and that number six role is such a unique role and skill which is going to lead me to throw something out there that Joss Butler fans might hate me for and I'd be really interested to know what your numbers would say about this Ben because this is not necessarily quantified by numbers but if Joss opens there are other people that can do the job Joss Butler broadly does as an opener in terms of striking at in the region of 150 and averaging in the region of 30 but there's he's the best finisher in the world. There's no one else that can come in at strike at two runs a ball plus in the last five overs, score at 360 degrees all the way around the wicket. Whereas you have guys like Hells and and Roy who can do that opening role. So to me, I think if you're Josh Butler, the traditional way we still look at metrics, which is really misguided, and statisticians like Ben are starting to move past this and other analysts, rightly so, is you know the person that scored the most runs does the best. The IPL still gives that a purple cap. For the most runs, which you can argue is a bit ridiculous, frankly. So, if you're Josh Butler and you get asked, do you want to open the batting? You're obviously going to say yes, because that's still the way everything's looked at. But actually, I would make the case that England are much better off having someone like Butler at six. Six is like, too low, though. For well, me six, to but quick but wherever the last, you know, coming in in on, the fifteenth, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I, th-
1: yeah. I think the equation that you're essentially trying to work out is is the net gain for England better. If you have, because they've got a lot of top top order players, like you say, they're kind of trying to cram Jason Roy and Johnny Birstow and potentially Tom Banton into that top order. I mean, Alex Hales, you know, if he comes back, you've got all those guys who could do a really good job. Is the net gain of putting Butler at 6-7, that kind of floating finisher role, d- does that improve them? The issue is, I, th- I think it will end up being either what, someone like Gregory or Butler will have to kind of bite the bullet and go down because Morgan... Struggles to accelerate at the start of his innings. Stokes struggles to accelerate at the start mm-hmm. of his innings. Um, it's, essentially, you've got guys who are very, very good in what what they do in different roles, but aren't necessarily as suited. Whereas Butler, despite the fact that he's obviously the most valuable player within that England side, and you want to give him as many balls as possible to do what he can do, and that's and that's why Radstone put him up, and that's why England then put him up, and that's why he, he's done so well in the last year or so. But at the same time, he's probably the best suited player. To doing that role it's, it's, it's a really tricky one but like that's kind of why they need to nail giving Gregory a go because mm. if he works then they've solved it that's, that's, yeah. just, just to leap back um, to what we were saying about the kind of Sam Curran batting up the order um, for one it's a, Curran himself is a bit of a misnomer because he also opened the batting for Kings XI, um this year because that's a bit of a pinch hitter so he, he is like a quality attacking batsman and it would be harsh to denigrate the blast and the standard of that based on purely current but there are other examples and i wrote i wrote about this recently um and um got a lot a lot of a lot of criticism and kind of people kind of slightly pushing back against it because people people love the blast and have a real affinity and affection for it um but it does affect the kind of players that are coming through like we say like someone like banton he he, he probably is a top order player but if he'd come through in a in a league with smaller with them a smaller league with fewer teams he probably would have made his debut a bit like how Joe Root did in the test side kind of coming in at six and kind of you get a bit of a glimpse of him and then you push him up and you give him a better better chance it I think the blast has an issue in in that it it doesn't produce doesn't necessarily produce that kind of player so it's not it's not a fatal flaw but I think it's I think it's a slight problem
2: for the record Butler bats four for me in my T20 side I just uh, kind of using your logic in that England have a lot of high quality opening batsmen great but I don't I want Butler to have as many balls as possible so is he
3: but is if it's 2 for 2 is he coming in for you? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He
2: is. Yeah, he's, he's, I understand he's a, why. He's a class yeah. yeah. Um yeah. linked to what you were saying about the varying qualities of leagues. Being a a selector in T20 international cricket is so different for any other format of international cricket in that you have so many leagues around the world of varying standards and also if somebody scores runs in a test match for England that increases their chances of staying in the team long term. Within T20s, you can't really say that because the quality of these random bilateral series isn't as high as the IPL, as simple as that. And how do you compare performances in different leagues? David Milan, for example, somebody scored five. Uh, he's, he's fifth in England's all-time list of fifty-plus <laughs> scorers in T20I cricket, but he's probably he might not even get into the World Cup squad. It's very difficult to assess the, the, these players, particularly when the, the pool is probably larger in T20s than it is for any other format.
1: And it's it's a bit like um. In the football, like with people like Gareth Southgate, uh, will keep players who've played well for England Mm. in the squad for a little bit longer, even though there's a kind of flavour of the month, whether it's James Maddison or someone coming through, and they're like, "Well, you've got to get him in there," and he's like, "Well, hang on." It's like Andrew Townsend or Roy Hodgson. Yeah, it's like well, well, it's like yeah, they've not done incredibly uh, at uh, their club, but they've played well for me, and so England have basically got to make a call with someone like David Milan, where every time he plays for England in 2020, he does a good job. But actually, every time he plays in a T20 league that isn't the blast, he really struggles. His numbers are really poor. And so it's which one of those do you place greater emphasis on? And I don't think either is right or wrong, but that's kind of the, that's, you know, that's the, the deal of being an international coach is you've got to make that call and kind of live or die by it.
2: And the selector's job is very difficult as well because historically, a selector watches England games and English domestic games, but there are so many English players going to leagues like the PSL now. Well, that's the problem because previously was...
3: Broadly speaking, there was two ways of assessing someone. They either had a full county season, and that was basically how you looked at them, or they'd had a full international season mm. with the England team, as say a summer. you know, And then winter, unless you were on an England tour, nothing much would really happen in the era before T20 franchise leagues. You might go and play for a club stint or whatever, but it wasn't looked at in the way that we would look at the IPL or the Big Bash, or etc. Cetera, et cetera. And now that's all been thrown open, because you have someone like Harry Gurney. So how do you look at him? Or Tom Curran for the Sydney, it's Sydney Six, I think it was, a while back. He had a winter, the winter before last, I think it was, where he was excellent. And the next World Cup's in Australia. Rashid has a ridiculously good record in Australia. So the way I'd summarise it is, England players used to play in England or for England. That was it. If you weren't playing in England, you were in an England shirt. So quantifying the whole thing was a lot more simple and you might have the rare floater who was kind of between the England team and the county setup and now you have a guy like Harry Gurney. So how do you go and compare that to, say, Chris Jordan who's, you know, playing in the blast and then in T20 eyes? You
2: know? oh, that's a really good point, really good point. I think it'll be very interesting how but what the process is like. Is with the With the 50 over World Cup, it was clear a long way out who the 15-ish players were. 16, 17 with the odds, the odd ball, like the basically David Willey who didn't get picked for the eventual squad. Um With a T twenty, genuinely, there's a pool of thirty players who probably think they're in with a shot. And also, how many was it for the fifty over World up? Was it a squad of 17? Was 15. It 15. Was 15. Oh, was it fifteen as well? Oh, okay, it's, it's, so it's fifteen plus David Willey and Alex Hales is, was basically your pool. For but that is but that design. is bizarre.
1: But I mean, it's probably it's probably f- for the best, really, in terms of the competitive balance of the tournament because it means that the the Bigger nations and the better nations can't just load their squad yeah. up, mm. but it does mean that, like, there are some really good players who just don't get to go, and mm. it means that you know there's probably a slight loss in the quality of cricket, though, which is a bit of a shame. Um, someone like, yeah, someone like David Willey might not go, and he's one of the best new ball bowlers in the world. Mm. He's, he's not necessarily in fashion at the moment, but mm. his numbers are amazing. Mm. Um, yeah, so it may be maybe going forward as T20 gets more and more respected and seen as like the most strategic, tactical mm. form of the game, squads will be allowed to get bigger and we, I mean we're seeing we'll probably talk about it later but stuff with the IPL in terms of the pools of players that are going to be drawn on the more players you have that are in and around the game in and around the cricket field who are good it's only going to improve the product and improve the experience of watching it well
3: to be slightly more slightly sort of nuanced about it I guess I would it's not nuanced I was going to say I didn't think I was that I, what, full on what I more meant is so uh, you were saying like the quality you won't get as, you know because of the bigger pool I suppose it's more that you, because you have a smaller a smaller squad, you're not able to have a squad that caters more better for different types yeah. of situations. You have all these different cricketers who are all of an incredibly high quality, but I guess you're you would in certain situations be missing a cricketer of a particularly high quality for a particular type of situation. It forces it forces that, teams to make a strategic choice. It forces yes. them to
1: develop a style because actually you can't have someone to cover you can't cover all bases. Yeah. So it's in, great, it, Sam
2: Billings. Well, about one to seven, Does a bit of everything, he? keeps yeah. like... And, yeah. and,
1: and that's the thing, and does everything pretty well. But the point is, is that you've got... You've potentially got with someone like India who could pick a bowling-heavy side. They could pick yeah. a batting-heavy side. They could pick a side that's going to win at the Chinnaswamy. They could w- pick a side that's going to win at the Chipout. They could pick any team for different styles. But they've got to kind of hedge their bets a little bit, mm. which which does, does yeah. make for a bit of a strategic kind of, I don't know, like throw something into the mix, which hopefully makes it more interesting.
2: Well... That, that is very interesting. We talked a lot longer on England's T20 squad than I thought we would. Based That's on all for folks three, today, it? <laughs> <laughs> Um Early in the week, I had the pleasure of speaking to the great Saviv Richards about his career. So here is that chat. So first of all, Saviv, pleasure to have you with us on the show. Um, first of all, I'd like to ask you about how you, how you developed your cricket as a youngster. So when you were growing up, um, when you were learning the game, did you have anyone in particular who had a profound impact on your cricket as a child? Yeah,
0: first let, first of all, let me say uh, good morning to you and hopefully our listeners. Uh, it's great to be here at uh, World Travel Market again, WTM, as a representative of my country, Antigua and Barbuda. And um, just very special to be here doing this interview as, w- with you as well. This is my first in terms of with the mic. And um, what was the question again?
2: <laughs> <laughs> question was, as a youngster growing up, learning the game, <coughs> do you have anyone in particular who had a profound impact on your cricket as a child?
0: My dad. My dad, um, he was a cricketer himself. He played, he played for for Antigua and Barbuda. And when you have someone of that particular stature in your family, uh, he was pretty knowledgeable also, and the sort of inspiration that I needed. That was the, the first beginning. Then there are certain steps as you go along, as you uh, obviously try and represent what's happening in your professional life.
2: Was he quite hands-on with you as a, as a kid, or was it more in terms of he inspired you, in terms of the attitude he instilled in you
0: growing up? Well, what I think attitude plays a huge part. Um, never to have fear, um, to believe in what you were doing. And these are some of uh, the homegrown skills that were, uh, were, were available at that time. And I took it on board because who else? You know, your parents, are, I've always believed for their kids, would want to drive them in the right direction. And no, no, parent, in my opinion, would want your kid to go in the opposite direction. So, I think they did all the necessary things for me to uh, to get by.
2: I read that you worked in a restaurant when you were eighteen. Yeah. Did having a proper job teach you anything, or give you an added sense of perspective before you started your international career?
0: Well, uh, at that time, um, I was in uh, when I just left school. You know, you're looking for. Um, we had uh, a restaurant which was known as. Uh, Uh, The Kensington Kensington Restaurant, which was on uh, St. Mary's Street in Antigua. And for some reason, um, it was a place that uh, prepared me for what I think I needed to to be. I didn't want to be there spending the rest of my life uh, as uh, a waiter at the time because it was something I did when I was in school also, especially when we had school vacation. You would make sure that um, this guy was a, a cricket lover. So he made sure that he had me around. and But I did not want that to be um, be uh, the final sort of play in my life. So as we went on, things progressed. And maybe while I'm speaking with you, you today, that um, things got a little bit better. Or much better, you may say.
2: But a lot of the great players now probably didn't have experiences like that working normal jobs. So do you think that pl- players would benefit from doing that now? And do you think you had a kind of an advantage for having quite a real upbringing and... Uh, experiencing a job that most people experience but not most professional cricketers
0: well sometimes it depends on the individuals themselves Um, sometimes you can have a bad start in life and it's about the finish Uh, I think um, sometimes you can start some pretty good in life and then the opposite playing uh, here in England for the first time and things different conditions so it was more um, there's a lot of thinking and a lot of things that you had us to do to, to get by. So I
2: was going to ask you about your time in England. How influential do you think that was in terms of your overall career?
0: England was a great place to be. I've, um, I've always felt as a little boy that uh, listening to West Indies Tour in England, uh, hearing John Arlott, the late John Arlott, speak about or describe what cricket was all about coming from Lords and all that sort of stuff. So as a little boy and then as a Caribbean individual with representatives from the region playing, wow, you, you take it on board. And you made sure that um, the things that you heard are some of the stuff which still lives with me today.
2: What kind of, what kind of stuff still lives with you today? Oh, well,
0: um, you, you hear John Hollett describe maybe as a Sir Gary Sobers. You hear him describe maybe a Conrad Hunt, a Wes Hall. All those little things, especially Wes Hall and the big medallion on his chest and running in um, to some guys who felt at the time that... Uh, they, um, they were uh, sentenced to death because of what Wes Hall and Charlie Griffiths had then. So all those little description, you know, um, lived with me for quite some time. Yeah.
2: Um. And then, about the start of your international career when you made your debut for for the West Indies, did you feel like you were ready for international cricket when you made your debut, or do you think you were finding your feet a little bit at the time?
0: Well, I started in um, in India. At the time, we uh, toured. 1974, if I'm correct in saying, uh, I don't think I was ready. I don't think I was ready for for 70,000 people in Bangalore, uh, 90,000 people in Calcutta. I wasn't ready for that. You know, these were more people than we i lived. You know, in terms of the population. So, it was a huge awakening, and um, I guess I guess that. uh these are the things that you need, the barriers that you need early on in life to, to give you a, a kick up the backside, whether or not you're going to make it or whether you would like to make it or not. So these were the little things which um, helped, dra- helped to drive you wanting to succeed.
2: You obviously got accustomed to it pretty quickly, though. Oh, yeah. What, what, why was that? Why was it that you became so accustomed to the big stage? Because I wanted to people? succeed.
0: You know, I wanted to succeed, and I, 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 I had to enjoy the adulation of such from the crowds, and wow, who wouldn't want to do well in front of 70,000 people? You know, so I didn't want to make it that I was a failure because um, there was uh, this multitude of people. I wanted to make sure that, uh, wow, what these seventy or 80,000 people would have seen today that would live with, live with them, for a long period of time. So, Viv, you've got to put, um, get, your, get your act together, yeah.
2: There were periods of your, over your career where your numbers with the bat were just staggering. So, 1976, that was a record number run scored by anyone in test cricket for, for 30 years, I think. Uh, around the turn of the decade as well, your numbers were just incredible. Did you kind of feel invincible at times of your career? And what was it about those periods in particular was different to the other times of your career?
0: Well, that, that was, um, I guess, when you're younger. When you're younger, there's a lot of things happening in your life and as you get older, sometimes the deteriorating factor does come in, do come in. Um, when you're younger, um, I think we're at our best, uh, our body is feeling also at its best. And as you uh, go along in life, the ways and tears sometimes becomes as a, as a deterrent. You do not quite accomplish the things that you were able to do when you, uh, whatever, you know, at that younger age in life. but. The things which would be of great help also is that the older you get that little experience factor the experience that you would have had plays a huge part making out it, it would help you to prepare you also even though you would not be that fit but because of the experiences you would have had helps you to to manage how you would like to uh progress
2: you're talking a lot about the mentality, the mental side of the game, but what about technically with the bat? Were there any technical things that okay, you I think was
0: okay, you know. I didn't place... When I wanted to be technical, I'm, I can be technical. Technique, um, to me, especially when you're looking to defend, uh, there are certain things you had us to be quite precise about being, te- uh, being technical. Uh, nice, close bat and pad. Um, um, because I've, I've always leveled my game at two things really it's when I'm on the attack I prepare my mind for being on the attack when I'm on the defensive because there are times you need to do that so you separate both defense is a defense and when you're on the attack it's on the attack sometimes you see some guys are defending and still trying to get something out of uh, defending like trying to push to the line defense in my opinion that's why it's called a defense, you know.
2: Do you ever feel out of form?
0: Yeah, there are times you do.
2: And what do you do when you're out of form to get yourself back into well, it? Well, you try to
0: remember the good things and you, to try and eliminate the things which would have helped you to fail. You try and eradicate that as best as you can. And I have um, I've tried that on numerous occasions. You know, it is, um, it is quite um, special at times when you're able to balance the things that you want to accomplish and the things that you you think you should throw through the door and um hard work pays a part
2: there's a question about uh the 1975 world cup is something quite interesting because you won the world cup and in the final you were a hero with three runouts but you averaged 12 or something with a bat in that world cup was f- taking pride in your fielding something that you took very seriously from a young age
0: yes yes feeling i think is of, of vital importance you know, and as you can see, uh, uh, those runners were like six wickets. Yeah. You know, um, at and the time. And did
2: you think you took fielding more seriously than perhaps other people? No, it's not a matter. It's
0: just the fact, the fact that uh, I don't think I would, would have been an, an established batsman mm. then. You know, I was still playing second fiddle to a whole lot of guys, the Ron Canais and all the other great West Indian players. But um, it was uh, the fact, being in that team as a young guy and uh, not contributing with the bat. There were other aspects of uh, the game in itself Mm. that I felt, wow, the Australians gave you an opportunity and because of that practice you had previously, you you were able to accomplish those two runners. Cool. Thank you very much, Viv. Good my brother, man. Good to see you my brother, man.
2: Vivichich was 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 pretty good. What one thing that I found quite interesting when I was researching for the interview was was how badly he did in the nineteen seventy five World Cup, considering he was a key player in the final. He took he uh, he was behind three important runouts that he said were, were basically worth six wickets. Uh, but he only averaged 12 in that World Cup. And I thought it was quite interesting how much that he kind of felt responsible to make an impact in the field when he hadn't done anything with the bat for the entire, entirety of the tournament. Um, ben, I remember we had a conversation last year about Virat Kohli. You said he's arguably the best ODI batsman of all time. And I said, well, there's Viv Richards as well. And obviously there's Davilius too, but he, from the 20th century, he is he is the standout.
1: Oh yeah, I I think at the time I was a bit more emphatic in terms of saying that like Coley's inarguably like he he is the greatest. But it's kind of it's recency bias, isn't it? And watching Mm. Coley twice a month kind of thing mm. of course I'm going to think he's the best when his numbers are that good but you look at Richards's performances over that time and he was, he was he was playing a different sport in a way that Coley isn't now Coley's mastered this version but mm. Richards was a kind of glimpse into the future um yeah I mean we're not bringing up anything new Viv Richards mm. was very good at batting but it is mm. it is kind of I don't know it's it's a nice one to kind of keep in the discussion as like mm. just to add a bit of texture to the mm. idea that like well if Coley makes a billion hundreds in ODI cricket and averages a million when he's chasing mm. then like there's still that thing okay. we can go back and be like yeah but if Richards had been playing in the era of like bigger bats, smaller boundaries kind of thing. But then again, he'd have been playing against bowlers that go around the world earning millions of pounds bowling Yorkers, which he wasn't
2: really at the time. So. Yeah. Moving on to Bangladesh's series in India, T twenty I series in India, from a purely cricketing point of view, it was it was a notable the first game of the series was notable and that Bangladesh had won it. It's their first game since Shaki was banned for a year. So that was impressive in its own right. Um but the, the the story that is is more important and overrides anything that happened on the cricket field was the fact they even got on the field in the first place. Um, the air quality in Delhi at the moment is is, is horrendous. Um, there were calls for for the game to be postponed. Former Indian bowler Ashish Nehra has even moved out of the city of Delhi because. The air quality there is so bad. Ravi Ashwin has been very vocal on social media. As vocal as Indian players ever get, really, on social media. He said, um, the quality of air in Delhi is really scary. The oxygen we breathe is the basic requisite for mankind on this planet. This, indeed, is an emergency. Sarav Ganguly, the new president of the BCCI, thanked both t- players from both teams after the game for playing the game in what he called tough conditions. I right, think There's a broader point here uh, with the climate emergency. They're going to be... Cricket, cricket. The sport is very vulnerable to climate change. Uh, increased temperatures in countries that are already very hot and air air quality problems. Do you think that cricket is going to have to implement regulations where we'll have to, we'll just see cricket not being played in places where it used to be played regularly?
1: I mean, that, that's kind of that's the the trend, isn't it? That's what's that's what's going to happen um, unless things far more important than far above cricket radically change. Um, Tanya Aldred has done fantastic work on this um, and spoke very well about it on uh, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon's podcast recently. And they've there's a lot of good writing out there, so I would urge people to kind of Mm. get stuck into. But it's hard to be kind of even glib or kind of think briefly about it because it immediately just kind of brings into perspective the kind of futility of what we're all doing here <laughs> and actually the the concern of it at the risk of demolishing this conversation it just makes you think kind of actually does it, it the effect of the climate on cricket is so minuscule really in the in the in the broader scheme of things
2: absolutely i'm not claiming otherwise but <laughs> no, yeah. I, know, I, know, I know i know
1: it's just it's just hard to sit here and think well you know the ball's going to probably swing a little bit less with the in in, uh, in white ball cricket with the uh, with the roasting temperatures around the world but yeah in terms of I suppose the flip flip side of it.
3: Well, that's what I was about to say. Do you get to a point where where actually, like we have a light meter for whether we go back out in a test match, we actually have an air quality meter and et cetera, et cetera,
2: et cetera. And the flip side of it,
1: I I would say as well, is that because cricket has such a voice in parts of the world, which are going to be deeply affected by it Mm -hmm. and perhaps earlier than other parts of the world, Mm -hmm. um, that does give it a responsibility to talk about these things. And it's good that this this particular game hasn't been shrouded in kind of it hasn't been all lumped in on delhi is like oh it's their fault it's it has brought about a wider discussion and that's you know sometimes these things can suddenly get very parochial and
3: we're just talking about like well do delhi need to change their regulations and it's like no it
1: it's a bit, it's important. a bit bigger than yeah
3: that. it's a, it's a symptoms cuz it also reminded me of that test which was in delhi a couple of years ago against sri lanka where they were for three or four days Whilst Kohli assembled a massive double ton as per usual, um, they were regularly on and off, and it was it was all pretty horrible. And it it all got a bit. Some of the stuff towards the Sri Lankan players got a bit nasty when they were generally just just actually mm. like struggling to breathe. I mean, I've had the privilege of going and working in India on a hockey tournament a couple of years ago, and being over there for a couple of work things since, and had travelled there on holiday a few times when I was younger, so I've been there a lot, north, east, south and west, and have been to Delhi as part of that. And you you really do notice it. I mean, it's just, it ju- you can't not. And I have to say, you know, as a kid who kind of understood broadly what climate change was and has heard about it and the rest of it, then went on a family holiday to India when I was 15 and went to Delhi. And then I got out of the airport and it was sort of explained to me, oh, this is kind of the sort of thing that happens from that. And as a 15-year-old kid then you really were like oh my god Mm. you know you couldn't and I mean if 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 that kind of thing even if you're someone that doesn't really believe in the need to kind of think about how you do things and your impact on the world if that kind of thing doesn't impact you I don't know what will I mean it's just it's pretty scary I was just going to say in in terms of like you're saying you don't necessarily
1: realize the extent of these situations until you're in them and a lot of A lot of what climate um, photography and um, journalism and writing about the the climate emergency is trying to convey that and actually cricket, by the fact that it's been broadcast around the world, if you're seeing the Sri Lankan team or you're seeing the Bangladesh team struggle to breathe in 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 a Delhi cricket match, which is potentially the high point of the game, like that should be elite almost beyond these kind of fairly pedestrian struggles, that he's only going to ram it home and so again it's just going to stimulate wider conversation it's it's in in a weird way it could prompt some good
2: moving on to some some, some slightly less important news from india in the last week um there've been proposed changes to the ipl uh changes reported on Gric Info and in the times of india suggesting we could have no ball umpires and substitutions times of india quoted a bcci official as saying we are looking at a scenario where a team will not Name the playing eleven. They will announce the fifteen, and a player can be substituted at either the fall of a wicket or at the end of the over at any point in the game. Imagine you need twenty runs off the last six balls and you have Andre Russell sitting in the dugout as he wasn't a hundred percent fit and was part and wasn't part of the original eleven. But now he can just walk in and go slam bang and win you the game. What do you think about that? That's, that's quite uh, the 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 substitute rule and having a squad of fifteen is is actually quite a drastic change. Look, I.
1: Quite like it because, <laughs> because I. Qu- but it's not
2: cricket. Well,
1: exactly. It's a bat and a ball, and it's people trying to you yeah. know take wickets and score runs. But it's definitely not cricket. Yeah. Um, the point, it, the point I was going to say, really is I don't necessarily like this particular iteration. But the idea of trying to increase the quality of the players involved in a game is interesting. Doesn't mean it's good or bad, but it cha- it does change it in a potentially significant way. We've seen it proposed elsewhere: the idea of specialist fielders, so the idea of a bowler so someone like Harry Gurney bowls his overs and then just runs off and is replaced by Fabian Allen or a brilliant fielder or just whoever you want like you can basically get that the general standard of play you can raise it doesn't necessarily mean anyone would want to watch that more than Watching Harry Gurney desperately try and like dive and save a four, which could be you know has a, a, an appeal <laughs> yeah, in an entertainment yeah, right. sense, and a lot of a lot of the skill of cricket selection and coaching and playing the game is balancing sides, and that, and, exactly. that, and that is inherently you know you don't want to take away that skill, but at the same time we sh- what we shouldn't be doing is anything like well this is it's always been the case because you know what twenty twenty didn't exist twenty years ago mm. like it doesn't these things weren't handed down to us by the gods we can change them if we think that they were if we think that we can make the game better and, one we, ch- thing, and we shouldn't be afraid one of one
2: thing that is really important though is we must never lose people people playing cricket who are totally hopeless of one aspect of the game the jack leech Th- the principle. jack Le- we need yeah, well we, yeah, yeah. yeah we we need is to have is there any that. other sport where that happens yeah. well, I was last, actually last having a
3: conversation with someone about this the other day is there any other sport where someone has to, sorry well on. I was gonna say last night we saw Kyle Walker go in goal for Manchester City
1: yeah, and, okay. it was, and it was amazing <laughs> yeah. yeah and we don't want to lose that because yeah. that is that is you know there's a fun element of seeing Freaky. someone it has
2: that like, almost every game when yeah a 11 comes an elite in. athlete
1: <laughs> doing something that they're not good at yeah exactly. it's, it's like a weird version of that old show Superstars where you're like triple jumpers to you go know, swimming yeah, and stuff, yeah. so <laughs> this is
3: kind of a si- similar version of what you said Ben. so I I read fifth I read the article And as soon as I saw 15 men, I was like, and not in playing 11, I was like, that's a warm-up game. That's what you do for a warm-up game. Mm. You know, those games where the scorecard is a mess because there's so many different players involved. But I totally agree with what you said about this is the way we've always done it is not a good reason to keep doing it that way. So I'm very interested in baseball and you have two major leagues in baseball, one where the pitcher also bats, but one with a designated hitter. So you have nine players and a designated hitter. And it's more interesting to watch a specialist hitter. So Is it? So you prefer watching when everyone is okay. just really good? Well, no, no, no. So, so you'll see where my argument's going. It's not saying you take out everyone who doesn't have that skill set. Mm. It's kind of a, a nuanced position between keeping it the way it is mm. and, you know, a 15-man chaotic warm-up game where all 11 players are brilliant batsmen mm. and there's there's nothing of that sort. So there's two of these leagues, baseball leagues in America. One has changed like this to have a pitcher that also bats and one hasn't. Mm. So th- they're both there for people to go and look out of interest. So one has nine people plus a designated hitter because with the idea that people find it more interesting to go to a short form event like that and see a specialist hitter, mm. which I believe is the case. I'm not going to try and speak for all people in cricket. I certainly broadly would 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 posit that. And so... They changed the sport to keep the quality higher. And I don't think cricket should be allergic to that idea and it could work. So, for example, if you had a game here, it'd be the cricketing equivalent, if you put that designated hitter thing in, of sort of what we had years ago with Vikram Slanky and the super sub, except done in a slightly different way, mm-hmm. whereby Imran Tahir bowls and fields, but Imran Tahir doesn't bat, and you have a, a guy like Richard Levi, he'd actually be perfect for this, um, who just comes out and hits, and I'm not saying it has to be Rich Levi. Other other <laughs> that other would be, that would be other hitters, <laughs> other hitters are available, and you know he's <laughs> I, I'm not his agent, but that kind of thing. So, but, so it's not saying like oh all eleven players are gun batsmen, mm. but it's saying you know you have your team, you try and balance your team, but you can actually take out one guy who that's not their mm. skill and kind of lengthen your batting order and yeah. But the, like we're saying, you shouldn't be allergic to change because you tweak and you tweak and you
1: tweak and then eventually you can land on a really good format. Like ODI Cricket at the moment I think is as entertaining as it's ever been and that's after basically a decade of fiddling around with it and trying to get it right and then eventually it And it not being very good to yeah, watch for a kind quite of long bad, period. Yeah, like not that interesting, not that like potentially like kind of strategically interesting on like a kind of drab level but mm. like you wouldn't get much out of it as a casual fan. But then before that, before they got that right, they were trying things like, like I said, like the Super Sub and things like mm. that and the issue with the Super Sub was that it ended up massively favoring one side rather than the other mm-hmm. depending on which way the, the the coin landed and there might be Version or iterations of this particular rule change which are going to come in where they go okay we, we've played a season of it and actually yeah. it's it doesn't work we need to change it like, we, like with VAR in football at the moment mm. they're like okay it's good in principle but we need to change this mm. and that's fine we should basically be more fluid in what we think is okay to do mm. because I remember um, we're, we're sat in the OCS stand at the Oval um, and I remember I was doing some work here a few years ago for a T20 match where Kevin Peterson um, was playing for Surrey and basically he was injured before the game but he'd hyped it up as like it was ah. one of his big games, but he didn't have a hamstring, mm. so he basically kind of limped out, and then was like, "Oh, I need a runner. Oh, I need a runner." Mm. And there was all this debate between McCollum and and uh, kind of the umpires about whether they were allowed it because it's like, well, it's pre-existing injury. But if Peterson was allowed to be a, uh, well, I'm I'm doing the air quotes thing, a designated hitter, mm. he could, he doesn't have to field. He could just come in, mm. give it a swing, and then go off, and you yeah. know, and and everyone gets to see Kevin Peterson back, but they don't yeah. have to see him limping around the outfield. And some might, some people might like that. A lot of people probably wouldn't, mm. but it's worth—it is worth thinking about. I think a lot of people are <laughs> instantly just kind of like, "Whoa, no hey, whoa!" And also because it's the IPL, which scares people mm. because it's kind of—it happens away from England and mm. it's kind of a bit exotic and a bit confusing for most people.
2: I mean, there's something that I want to mention, but don't really want to go into in any detail. There's a story yesterday that uh, the. <laughs> the House of Lords have recommended that the Ashes should be shown on free-to-air TV this is not true there's a report and at the end there's a throwaway line where they say that we could extend the list of sporting events that are safeguarded for live free-to-air TV and if we do extend it the Ashes could be one that's that's, that's included. It, it, I think it's just an old man really who remembered the Ashes exist. There's a conversation um,
1: to be had about some free-to-air cricket at some point. The 100 is going to be on free-to-air in, in part. Mm. There is a conversation to be had there but it is not to be had in the tired hackneyed language of the House of Lords mm. recommending that the, the crown jewels mm. to kind of coin the phrase mm. of Sky Cricket's coverage which is mm. the best cricket coverage in the world probably. You're looking at taking away their main assets just not it's not going to work on an economic level it won't work also, I mean, and, sh- and, sh- and it shouldn't work also i mean they,
2: they didn't really suggest it so <laughs> It's a, it's a total I'm in danger non-story. of arguing with the point that didn't get made, so yeah. I, should, <laughs> I should back off a bit. Sorry, yeah. Um, let, let's go to Australia. Australia 1 and up of the first of their two T20Is against Pakistan. In the first T20I, Australia were 41 for none after 3.1 overs when the game was called off. The DLS pass score for f- five overs, the minimum required for a full T20I, was 39. So Australia already had enough runs. That just seems like quite a simple oversight in the rules, and that's a very easy one to change.
1: It's it's a system so confusing that Yaz has had to record this twice because <laughs> he got it wrong the first time. Um, it, 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 yeah, it's a bit of an oversight, isn't it? D- DLS is, you know, it, it's a slightly imperfect measure for 2020, you could say. But that's
2: but not even DLS's fault, is it? That's just poor implementation of a system that they used Yeah.
1: I mean, personally, I think they should just use WinViz and see whoever's ahead, <laughs> on, whoever's ahead on WinViz whenever they go off, and they just we could do it at the start of the game. Don't even need to play it. To be oh, honest, I, w- I wonder why he said that. Um,
2: Steve Smith hit 80 not out on the second <laughs> T20I, so from a cricket point of view, that's that's much more interesting. Um, ben, is he a for Australia's eleven at the T20 World Cup next year?
1: I, I think he is. Um, whether he should be is probably a little bit more of a debate, but I I doubt. But mass- after what he's done now, he's going to be
2: right. I'll give surely. you. I'll, I'll say why, what I think, and I think you're going <laughs> to disagree with it. I think that Steve Smith, Joe Root, Kane Williamson, they have just got to play because you gave the scenario earlier oh in the podcast else. of somebody of a team oh, being two for two, two. two. Oh, no. And there's no one else in the world I'd rather have in those situations than those guys. That doesn't mean they have to bat three every single uh, time. And uh, uh, no this
3: reminded me of the, I know this is the, because I saw it on your Twitter feed and I I agreed with your replies where people were like, they were one for one and you were like, it's like a 98%. So, uh, yeah.
1: But uh, yeah, that, that was in, in, in discussion of the idea that that was a previous innings, that was in Brisbane, I think, yeah. where they were Australia basically were going to win, but Smith came in and kind of cleaned up. That's a different conversation. That, that innings wasn't very interesting. This innings was interesting because it hinted at something that Smith hasn't done in a while, which is just going to that next gear where he's not just an anchor. Yeah. Because you know what anchors do? They slow ships down. You don't want to be an anchor in T20. Mm. He hinted at being able to go to the next level and actually there were a couple of things that he did a couple of shots that he played I mean everyone kind of focused on that weird one where he kind of did the periscope and it came off the back of the bat and the ball went into space or whatever like everyone focused on that one but the more interesting one which was my moment of the week but Yaz has forgotten to ask me no no I was um, waiting for this part of the show actually <laughs> is, um, is was there, a, there was a moment when uh, Mohamed Irfan bowled two balls to Smith that were just outside off stump and someone clipped it up on Twitter I can't remember who it was I'm afraid um, and basically one ball Smith played a kind of flaying cover drive, kind of drive come cut kind of thing. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And it sent it to the offside boundary. And then the next ball, he kind of did his weird wrist shimmy oddness and hit it away to the mid-wicket boundary. And it was amazing. And it just showed that, like, fundamentally, and this is an argument I've had with um, Freddie Wilde of Quick Visit a few times, is that he places a lot of emphasis on the idea that Steve Smith is a genius with a bat in his hand and that actually he will overcome any issues that he has in t20 in terms of his power hitting because he is a genius yeah and he he probably won't even sleep till he has yeah well he doesn't (laughs) he doesn't need to he's going to spend next year not not sleeping and practicing in the nets and he you know that could genuinely be true but (laughs) there is there is a a greater potential to what smith can do than potentially someone like joe root who is whilst a very good player in test cricket and a great player in ODI cricket he's not potentially not necessarily got the same range we saw it when he played for the Thunder last year in the BBL and when he does play T20 cricket he looks good and I know a lot of people place a lot of emphasis on that great South Africa I innings. Say. your editor Phil Walker or your senior Phil Walker rather um, and I know people obviously call back to that innings but I think a lot of that is just because people don't watch a lot of T20 cricket outside World Cups mm. I that think, was, I, it was
2: an astonishing innings and Joe it was, it and really Root was. hasn't played that much T20 cricket in the time since which is a long period of time not to play that much in.
1: I think the difference is is that, I mean, fundamentally, I think that Steve Smith's just better than Joe Root. And so I, th- I think you can, when, when you're talking about your, your Williamsons, your, uh, you know, your Williamsons, your Roots, your Smiths, you're talking about three very different players there. Mm. Kane Williamson, the reason he's so good is because he plays for Sunrises and he generally plays on a terrible deck where you need to place a lot of emphasis on his ability to kind of problem solve that. Mm. And Smith has been getting to that point. In various innings whereas Joe Root we don't really know what his skill set is in that is is he someone who can strike at 160 or is he just there as the anchor we don't know because we don't Mm. see him play T20 cricket Mm so my issue is that if you don't see someone play T20 cricket you shouldn't really be selecting Mm -hmm. them because if the rest of the world isn't thinking that they're they're valuable Mm -hmm. then why why would England
2: Oh that's a bit that's yeah, a bit no, that's a bit blunt. I, I see but. I see I see where you're coming from but I I do place great infin- emphasis on that knock against Africa. He was brilliant in a team that was an over away from winning the last version of the T20 World Cup. So I oh, did they not win? I turned off with them over the <laughs> <ago>. <laughs> um, And I th- I think uh, I kind of kind of using Freddie's argument about Steve Smith I use that with Joe Root. Joe Root is naturally ta- is so naturally talented. Yeah, and I course. think that the possibilities endless I think if he if he concentrates on T20 cricket for a prolonged period of time. The
1: point with Australia though is that Steve Smith is locked in. He is going to play next year because they have identified him as the linchpin in their batting lineup. Mm-hmm. He is the the cog, he is the key cog. Mm-hmm. Personally, I would say David Warner should be that guy, maybe dropping out of the opening partnership and batting 3 because I think he can do everything Smith does and more. Mm-hmm. But Australia have made that call and I think it's right to make it a year in advance because mm-hmm. then you give the project the best chance of working yeah. even if it's not necessarily the best plan you're giving it a better chance of working than just dropping him in you know 3 weeks before and saying go and have a couple of hits mm. against you know someone in the warm up
2: mm. the last week also saw the end of the T20 World Cup qualifier so we know the six teams going to the World Cup in Australia and we the the, the competition actually came to an end because after all the 16 qualified there was a semi-final final stage to decide the winner Netherlands won it PNG came second Namibia Scotland Ireland and Oman will be going to the World Cup I was out there um, so I'm just going to quickly run through what I thought about those six teams because I think they're all interesting in their own right Netherlands I think will do very well in Australia they've got a very well balanced side uh, they've got a good pace attack Van and Van der Gooten they actually were quick and they did really well on quite slow surfs in the UE I think in Australia they'll do even better so i would say out of out of the, the, the associate teams most likely to qualify for the Super 12, I'd say Netherlands are comfortably, comfortably first. PNG are a really interesting team. They're very good in the field. Uh, they're very clever with the ball. Uh, they lack batting for firepower. I think on quicker surfaces, they'll struggle. Namibia are an impressive team in terms of the out of all the teams in the competition, they definitely have the most... Uh, depth in their batting on A lot of teams are very top-heavy. They have finishers, which at that level, actually teams don't really have. Uh, Scotland really struggled. I think they were quite lucky to qualify for the World Cup. Um, they struggled, I think, a lot because of the conditions. So I think in Australia, they'll do, tend to do quite well. Um, Ireland are developing. Uh, I think that uh, Gareth Delaney was a great find. He bowls like quite fast leg spin and can bat in the top order. He scored a brilliant, Arguably, innings of the tournament, eighty nine against Oman, a game that if Ireland didn't win, they might not have even qualified. And then lastly, Oman themselves, odd team. They finished sixth, but I think in many ways the most impressive team in the tournament. Uh, they've got the they've got the best individual players in my opinion. Bilal Khan, I think, is going to be the star of the T Twenty World Cup next year. He's a thirty one year old left arm quick who just swings it miles, and he bowls. Uh, accurate Yorkers at any level that's, that's impressive uh, he's, he's a lot like David Willey we are talking about David Willey earlier in the show but he bowls probably ab- about Willey's pace maybe slightly quicker he's, he's taller than Willey he swings it loads and he just bowls loads of Yorkers he particularly in that group stage is going to be really really difficult to handle so Benal Khan remember the name um, we'll finish today's show talking a bit about Michael your time at the European Cricket League uh, which I think is quite interesting, uh, and you're talking about it to me before we started recording. Um, a very impressive professional setup for a tournament where the the level of cricket was in some ways quite amateur. Absolutely,
3: I'm going to start by saying that something that links the European Cricket League and your previous link, oh, which is, and I have to declare an interest in saying this, but my co-commentator at the European Cricket League, Ryan Campbell, Netherlands head coach. Oh. Congrats to them and all of their guys, uh, but. I am not at all surprised in that we were chatting about the upcoming qualifiers while we were at the ECL and that side that he'd assembled and how many different of those I'm going to try and remember how to speak but how many of those different players had got county exposure Mm. and how he's worked really hard to create a very good pipeline for how the next generation coming through can get that kind of exposure that kind of brings them on another level with the next progression idea with the view to the fact that someone a franchise might at some point take a chance on a max o'dowd in a low price bracket mm-hmm. as an opener who can hit a long ball um and you know kind of that pipeline of using the t20 franchise leagues and the way mm-hmm. things have evolved as a platform for these associate players and um yeah no it was really nice to see them do well and i think they'll do uh, they'll do bits in Actually,
2: one more thing before we go on the ecl one team i didn't mention was jersey don't be surprised if Jersey qualify for a World Cup in the not-too-distant future. They were one win away from qualifying in the top six in the group's age, which would have taken them to the World Cup. Uh, and they're a really young team. Uh, their yeah. best players are all under the age of 24. There's a guy called John T. Jenner, who's really excellent.
3: And it's interesting you mention that, because ECL founder Dan Weston won't be necessarily chuffed with me mentioning this, because it wasn't, obviously, a great time for him. But his... his I say his side, uh, you know, he was part of the Germany side that were very close to Jersey in qualifying and it came down to a minuscule mm. margin by yeah. which Jersey got through. So we Bally ended up... Germany. We ended up kind of chatting about, about them and he was like, yeah, they're an impressive group of sort of young players. But again, the strength and depth that is building in associate cricket is shown by the fact that Jersey went and did that and they only just got there. Like by... by it was net run rate and it was tiny and Germany fresh jersey when they played each other in the head to head but it was Germany losing to Italy that cost them and then Germany had a a chase they had to win in X amount of time and Nepal didn't didn't even
2: qualify for the qualifier It's quite interesting I'm going to be quite controversial and say that it shows the depth at a lower level but I think it shows that the quality at the top end of associate cricket is not perhaps what it was a couple of years ago so I don't think Ireland are as good I know they're not an associate team Ireland are not as good as they were a few years ago Afghanistan are no longer even in the qualifying tournaments Zimbabwe weren't there uh, I that think Irish team had a life cycle didn't they yeah it yeah. that generation it's a, tra- it's a
3: transitional period for you them. just desperately wanted them to play test cricket
2: what's really exciting
1: because I I don't watch a huge amount of associate mm. cricket I, I watch it when it's on television and I can kind of easily drop onto it and so I've enjoyed watching the qualifiers um and it's it, you know it's an old thing of just like getting to see fresh players and mm. fresh faces it's always exciting but I think the structure of the tournament next year is going to work really well in terms of building that momentum and that kind of narrative. Because I remember like mm. f- at the, the 2016 World T20 everyone got really excited about a couple of Afghanistan players because mm. it was like the first time that most people had seen them and by having those teams just kind of wetting everyone's appetite before the tournament starts mm. it means that there's going to be narrative circling around players that maybe kind of flying a little bit under the radar and then by the time they reach the tournament everyone's going to be like oh, okay yeah so I'm, I, know, I know that I want to watch them back it was like a bit like in the World Cup when everyone suddenly discovered Hazra Tuller and everyone was like oh yeah yeah <laughs> I want to watch him back and it was partly because he yeah. like, you know there have been a few clips that have gone around of him and he kind of done done bits in various leagues around the world but Having that little pre-tournament mm. should kind of—I don't know—I think I think that could really improve the experience of the the associate players yeah, and how people experience them. And it's
2: really good. There are twelve; it's a super twelve rather than a super ten. Yeah, mm. that's, I think that's really important. Um, yeah. It's going to so, be great. Yeah, can't wait. Do you want to explain a little bit to our listeners what the ECL was? Yes, and then and then explain quite by, quite the the production levels behind it because you were saying that it's one of the most impressive tournaments you've actually worked on as a commentator
3: yeah so i mean i've been very lucky in that across hockey football tennis i've worked on outside broadcasts as a as a commentator or presenter or both in different parts of the world different well-known companies um got involved with the ecl through was introduced through a, a friend who runs the ecl website mark level um, and most of the ecl crew were kind of uh, broadly a lot of them kind of people that knew dan weston from his perf roots or had kind of come through the journey of german cricket tv which is where they started going out and filming games Mm. and then particularly with the immigrant community but also with germans picking it up as well it exploded because a lot of people were in germany thinking i love cricket but cricket doesn't exist in germany and then they saw it on facebook and were like oh my god it does and the number of clubs just mushroomed overnight i'm not going to quote numbers because i don't have them but dan has them but we're talking a huge increase And that evolved into what eventually became the European Cricket League. So the European Cricket League is the Champions League of European Cricket. And unlike the Champions League now, where you finish fourth in the English Domestic League and you still get a spot, you win your domestic T20 League in the T20 format, to be clear, because there's also some with 40, 50 over formats. Mm -hmm. You get to the ECL. So I'm going to mention Pavel Florent because it's inevitable. They won the Romanian T20 Domestic League, Cluj, his team. That got them to the European Cricket League and we all know what happened next. They won the Romanian league this year. So they'll be back next summer. That's the way it works. Um, And it's, so last, last year you had eight teams, all champions of their own leagues. It's not exactly giving anything to way to say that it's going to be bigger and better because it's going from a three day tournament to a sort of seven or Eight day tournament, I think, now from the 31st of May to the 7th of June. I hope I've got that right. I'm pretty sure I have. Uh, so, already announced, you've got the champions from Sweden, Belgium, Finland, and Norway all joining. You initially had, oh, this is like a test now, remembering them all, but you had France, Romania, Spain, um, Germany. Uh, there's some I've forgotten, and I feel terrible. But but you you so you get, you get the message. There's they're going double Dutch. So VOC Rotterdam won it, and if you win, then you get to come back. And so the, you know, basically the runners up in the Dutch competition are coming as well. So there'll be two Dutch teams. There's more where that came from. Uh, I'm going to do that thing that a politician does where they always say, like, I'm not going to reveal my policy on your programme, Evan, you know, and all that things where politicians politician question questioned because that's for Dan and everyone to reveal at the appropriate moment. But, but, I, I mean, but so that's so kind so of the le- broad format.
2: The, the, le- the level of production, though, was really high. It was broadcast. So yeah. the question is, Is there, was there a demand for this tournament? How's it, how's it? How's that level of production funded? Well, I mean, in terms of... There's an amazing thing for it to exist yeah, so, and to be able to watch it in that great detail. So
3: it's it's all the brainchild of of Dan Weston who who his kind of turned his vision into a reality. Um and ultimately it's you know like any tournament in the long term you know they're actively looking for sponsors for this mm. year this year coming um and to kind of keep it growing and keep it expanding because you have to kind of manage your things in a responsible way and I know if, the first year of the ECL, you know, it was it was done in a very professional way without being kind of reckless in the way it was planned. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, in terms of the broadcast output, I mean, you had NEP, who are a very, very well-known production company. Just to give you a little story rather than just giving dry stats, there was a guy, Ross was his name, who I had the pleasure of being at the England Sri Lanka series in Palakelli and Colombo. And I met this guy, Ross, who was doing... Uh, the cameraman for World Feed from the bowler's arm, which is a very specific job. You know, you can only do that if you're a specialist. It's not the kind of thing that every cameraman can do because you've got to track a cricket ball, right? You know, if you if you don't know where the ball's going to turn and you follow it the wrong way, the pictures are missed, etc., yeah. etc. Now Ross was on the camera gantry in Palakkad and Colombo, and then, not to my surprise—that'd be too far to say—but I was still pleasantly surprised when first day of the ECL Ross was there. And that really gave me a thing of like, I already knew, you know, by that point what a big serious thing was and how awesome this was gonna be. But you saw someone like that there and you were like, Yeah, there's been no corner cutting with this. Mm. You know, wh- when I first got involved a few months out and was only hearing bits and bobs off emails, you're there thinking, well, maybe in the back of your head you're like, are they gonna do maybe a two camera thing or four camera thing? You know, like mm. you see most kind of streaming thing, or what are we gonna do? And then it was only kinda of when I got there a week before and the ground started getting developed at La Manga and the LED boards and all of the ECL branding and then the team kits which are absolutely on point, the umpires kits, um, all of that sort of thing. And then it was like you have got thirty cameras and the rest of it, you were like, Wow, this mm-hmm. is you know, this is gonna be a serious thing and now we now that's been done, it now gives something whereby sponsors before he might be like, Cricket in Europe? Like is mm-hmm. that a you can now go to them and say, well, here it is. It was on TV across the world, including, you know, Fox Australia, Sky New Zealand, 100-plus countries, streamed online at ecl.cricket. It's there. It's happened. Like, look at look at the what, you know, with Pavel as well, look at how many people were talking about it, mm. one way or another. And actually, once people got on the front foot on social media with the Pavel flowing story and were like, look, this guy was a bodyguard, is a bodyguard. Six years ago, he never played cricket. He basically came across some, uh, this is by his own mode, some guys who are playing cricket who he went and hit the ball a couple of times. And they kind of were being, by his own admission, very charitable to him in their praise and said like, oh, you know, you're brilliant. You could be the first Romanian to be fantastic at cricket. And he sort of said, oh, OK, I think you're kind of being too nice, but I'll join in. Six years later, he's president of a cricket club. They have to have a five hour drive from Cluj to Bucharest one way to play every single game. You know often in total darkness isn't this the kind of story we want like I found it very odd there was I know Twitter isn't a great place for debate sometimes I, I'm gonna say but <laughs> but you had people on Twitter who would who would be unhappy about the lack of cricket growing expanding maybe not being on free to air what et etc etc but then mm. someone like Pavel comes along and some people, sometimes those same people or other people, would turn into huge cricket snobs, mm. and you're like, "Well, this is the first Romanian, <laughs> b- Romanian-born kind of player emerging. Wh- what are you expecting?" Mm. You, you, I just, I found the, the you know, I, it was interesting. I got on the front foot on Twitter as soon as that happened. I was at the back of the commentary box when first came onto bowl, and tweets started flying in. This is off my own account, not the ECL account, and it was all these people, this kind of cancel culture. It's like, "Oh, the ECL should be cancelled. Oh, Pavel Florin should be cancelled And I replied to a few people, not being rude, but just, like, I put a thread out with the story, as did a few people. And I also just replied, not being rude, but just, just like, stating what I've just stated about his journey. And then they'd come back and say, oh, no, mate, well, I was only joking. And you're like, okay, well, what you've actually written is pretty, pretty stinging. Mm. You're saying, like, the whole competition shouldn't exist, or, like, he's a joke actually he's not he's an inspiration like i'm a, he's a, i'm proud to call him a friend now and if you want cricket to grow in europe you should be encouraging a tournament like this and somebody like him i think it's it's tricky isn't it because i'm not
1: sure cancel culture is quite the right word but or quite the right phrase but there is it there is a a kind of life cycle to opinions on twitter where they kind of everyone has to have a reaction to something straight away and then so someone gets it wrong and then you have to react to that and then that becomes the correct opinion yeah. and so it, it gets it gets silly and it's unnecessary um i think i i mean I, I certainly didn't go as far as to kind of criticize what was happening or when when i saw that clip i you know you, you feel like oh that's you know it's kind of weird to see yeah. someone really bad at cricket like playing with a little with the with all the really good graphics and it's this yeah. really hyper yeah. and and so yeah. it's jarring and you can have that reaction and you think oh that's 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 weird i feel i feel strange about that if your reaction to is to think like like oh, this guy's rubbish i don't want to see him he shouldn't be allowed to play cricket then that's yeah. that's one thing you to, to have the reaction of thinking like this is this is odd <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> is, yeah is, yeah, is yeah one yeah. thing and yeah. i think i think i think a lot of the time with cricket with cuz it's obviously a really heartwarming story but i think we often get sold the kind of uh, english village green kind of oh it's the, the the hearty amateur the beautiful amateur game kind of thing and actually it's quite nice of a variation on that it's yeah. not just like oh yeah i grew up in tunbridge wells and my father played <laughs> for my father's 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 too it's nice to yeah. be like okay yeah yeah this guy from romania has actually come out of nowhere yeah. and like you know y- the story has pros and cons but it's yeah but it's kind of it, it's it's nice that it's something different at the very least mm. it's not it's not a hackneyed cliche i think it was
2: i think it was really good that eventually from from all this it was turned into a a really positive story, and that was all really, really interesting. Thank you so much Sorry for, the for coming on. No, not at all. Uh, thank you both for coming on, uh, folks. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please subscribe. Tell your friends. We'll be back next week. See ya.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.